Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. M-S-W Media. Hey everybody, it's AG and welcome to Refried Beans, where we play an episode of the Daily Beans podcast from the same week, either one, two, or three years ago, so we can see how far we've come. So please enjoy this episode from Days Gone By and note the date in the intro. Refried beans. I like refried beans. That's why I want to try fried beans, because maybe they're just as good and we're, we're wasting time. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Wednesday, February 9th, 2022. Today, a witness list from federal prosecutors gives us an inside look at the upcoming trial of a three percenters affiliate. The FBI has arrested another insurrectionist that was out on bail for attempted murder when he stormed the Capitol. McConnell breaks with the RNC and called the Capitol attack a violent insurrection. And the FBI is investigating a meeting that took place between Enrique Tarrio, Stuart Rhodes and others on January 5th. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hey, everybody, flying solo today again. Dana is out. She's going to do her show tonight live in New York. And you can, of course, get tickets. We've been posting ways to do that all week. And um, she, that's going to be at 7 p.m. Eastern and 4 Pacific. And then later in the show today, I'll be joined by Congressman Adam Schiff to discuss his book, Midnight in Washington, 
and also today's Republican Party, and uh, of course the Democratic strongholds that are currently under attack and have been for several years now. We do have a lot of news to get to today before we talk to Adam Schiff, so let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right, the FBI is probing a meeting in a downtown D.C. garage the day before the January 6th Capitol Hill riot between then-leader of the Proud Boys extremist group, the now-indicted leader of Oath Keepers Militia, and other far-right figures, and that's according to two witnesses interviewed by FBI agents. Among the half-dozen people gathered at the garage near the Phoenix Park Hotel was Oath Keepers head Stuart Rhodes, who was indicted this year on charges of seditious conspiracy for the insurrection. Proud Boys chairman Enrique Tarrio, who was not present at the riot, was also at the garage meeting but left Washington afterwards. The meeting put the heads of the nation's two best-known violent far-right pro-Trump groups in immediate proximity to each other, 24 hours before the breach of the Capitol. Three attendees or their representatives contacted by Reuters said they did not discuss matters related to January 6th. They were talking about what to get their friend for their wedding gift. Yeah, I'm sure they didn't discuss January 6th at all. Bianca Gracia, who heads a pro-Trump coalition called Latinos for Trump and an affiliated political action committee named Latinos for America First, was at the garage meeting as well, according to witnesses and video taken by a documentary film crew. Oh, they, they had a documentary film crew with them. How convenient. Also present was Kelly Sorrell, a lawyer for the Oath Keepers and Latinos for Trump. Sorrell told Reuters she was invited by Gracia to meet Tario and share information about criminal defense attorneys. She said her role in the meeting was brief and did not concern plans for the next day. Tario told Reuters last June that his meeting at the garage with Rhodes was unplanned, just ran into him. It's not significant. Quote, by coincidence, he said, he was inside that parking garage. And he said he shook hands with Rhodes solely to be polite. He's here. I'm not going to not shake somebody's hand. Uh, He has denied any Proud Boys planning ahead of January 6th. The FBI's investigation of the meeting has not previously been reported until today by Reuters, nor have the circumstances of the gathering. A short clip of the gathering appeared in a British Channel 4 documentary last year about the Proud Boys, spurring some chatter on Twitter. Federal prosecutors have charged multiple leaders of the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers with playing leading roles in the mayhem of January 6th. Tario has not been indicted in the case. I'll keep you posted on what the FBI finds out. And a January 6th rioter who stormed the Capitol while he was out on bail on attempted first-degree murder charges was arrested by the FBI on Tuesday more than 10 months after he was first identified by online OSINT sleuths, which is so cool. Matthew Jason Bedingfield of North Carolina faces felony charges of assaulting officers, impeding officers during a civil disorder, and carrying a dangerous or deadly weapon on restricted capital grounds, as well as several misdemeanors, and that's according to court records. Bedingfield was first publicly identified in a Huffington Post story in March after online sleuths investigating the attack used facial recognition to find his mugshot and then confirmed his identification with the help of his father's Facebook page. Bedingfield traveled to Washington on the 6th with his father, a fellow Donald Trump supporter who also believed the former president's lies about the election. The two had attended a November 2020 rally in Washington in support of Trump's efforts to overturn his election loss. Images that Bedingfield's father posted of that rally showed his son wearing identical Nike sneakers and carrying the same pole attached to an American flag as he did on January 6th. When he stormed the Capitol, Bettingfield was on bail on a first-degree attempted murder charge in connection with a December 2019 shooting of a 17-year-old in a Walmart parking lot when Bettingfield was 19 years old. 
He was initially held on a million dollars bail, but after he secured pretrial release when bail was lowered to $100,000. After he stormed the Capitol on January 6th, Bettingfield pleaded guilty to a lesser charge in connection with the shooting. He was on probation in the shooting case when he was arrested Tuesday. Video compiled with the help of online investigators shows Bettingfield at the front of the mob outside the Capitol, jabbing at the police line with his American flag, throwing a metal object at cops, and appearing to give a Nazi salute. By the time Bettingfield emerged from the Capitol, his father, Jason, like thousands of others, was on the restricted exterior grounds of the U.S. Capitol, but he's not facing charges as of Tuesday. The elder Bettingfield, who posted on Facebook on January 6th about taking the country back, can be seen hopping over a fence Uh, restricting access to the Capitol grounds while carrying a pro-Trump flag. An affidavit signed by an FBI special agent credits citizens and citizen investigators and the Huffington Post story with identifying Bettingfield and uses the nicknames he was given by online sleuths tracking his movements. Bettingfield was associated with two hashtags, hashtag soggy kid insider, possibly because he's pictured emerging from the Capitol covered in what appears to be liquid, and hashtag Nazi gray hat, possibly because he appeared to be making the gesture commonly associated with Nazis. And also, prosecutors late Monday began laying out their trial strategy for a January 6th case in the clearest details yet, indicating they intend to call multiple Capitol Police officers, a former Senate aide, a member of the Three Percenters Militia who was granted immunity, and the Secret Service agent who helped supervise then-Vice President Mike Pence's visit to the Capitol that day. Prosecutors revealed their proposed witness list in the case of Guy Reffitt, a Texas man who was charged with storming onto Capitol grounds, attacking multiple police officers and carrying a firearm. Reffitt is charged with civil disorder, obstructing Congress's proceedings, that's the big one, carrying a semi-automatic handgun to the Capitol, and later, after returning home, attempting to obstruct justice. Secret Service Special Agent Paula Wade will tell jurors about preparations for January 6th session and Pence's visit to the Capitol, With his family members, Wade will also walk jurors through surveillance footage of the Pence evacuation. It dawns on me, why did Pence bring his family to the Capitol that day? Knowing there could be trouble. Shield? Or did he not know? Was he not expecting this? Anyway, the witness list also includes three Capitol police officers who say they attempted to stop Reffitt's advance with pepper balls and chemical spray. Sergeant Adam DeCamp, Sergeant Matthew Flood, and Officer Shawnee Kirkhoff are expected to describe confronting Reffitt outside the Capitol as well as calling for and deploying their non-lethal weapons against him. Their testimony will be supported by surveillance video clips, radio clips, and photos taken of the interactions with Reffitt. A fourth Capitol Police official, Inspector Monique Moore, is also slated to testify on behalf of the Department of Justice. Moore oversaw the department's command center that day, and prosecutors say she will discuss the riot's overall impact on the department, as well as its effect on the ongoing effort by Congress to count electoral votes. The witness list also reveals that jurors will get a history lesson on the Electoral Count Act from a Senate aide, Daniel Schwager, who was counsel to the Secretary of the Senate on January 6th and was on the Senate floor when rioters broke into the building and forced them to evacuate. Schwager, prosecutors say, will explain to jurors how the January 6th session of Congress works and its significance in finalizing the results of the presidential election. The Justice Department revealed its plans to call Reffitt's two children including his son Jackson Reffitt, who reported his father to the FBI in December of 2020 and then secretly recorded him after he returned home from Washington in January of 2021. Jackson Reffitt has publicly talked about his efforts in various media interviews over the past year. Both of Reffitt's children are expected to testify 
about what the government has described as threats their father made to his family to prevent them from reporting him to federal investigators. That's the obstruction part. In addition, prosecutors say they will call fellow members of 3% or militia group that Revit was part of. This associate, quote, traveled with the defendant from Texas to Washington, D.C. and back between January 4th and January 8th. He will testify about how he knows the defendant, discussions he had with the defendant, their travel arrangements, the defendant's firearms and tactical gear, and the defendant's movements and actions. The witness is only identified on the list as R.H. in the new filing. Uh, He was granted immunity in exchange for this testimony. All right, over to the 1-6 committee. They have postponed depositions for Rudy Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, Boris Epstein, and Sidney Powell. That was supposed to happen Tuesday, today. When asked how the committee will deal with these witnesses not showing up, Rep. Zoe Lofgren told Wolf Blitzer, quote, not everyone we are eager to speak with is eager to speak with us, but we will get all the information we need. We know that Rudy and Powell, by the way, are both under federal criminal investigation at this time. All right, in other news, Mitch McConnell is the latest to break with the RNC. From NBC News, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell disagreed Tuesday with the Republican National Committee's recent censure of two top GOP lawmakers, as well as its characterization of the attack on the Capitol. Quote, we were all here. We saw what happened. It was a violent insurrection for the purpose of trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power after a legitimately certified election from one administration to the next. That is what it was. That is blindingly clear. There is no ambiguity there. Legitimately certified election. Took it a step further than Pence did. Pence just said Trump was wrong. He couldn't overturn the election. Mitch took it a step further and said this, this was a legitimately certified election. McConnell also said Tuesday the RNC shouldn't be in the business of picking and choosing Republicans who ought to be supported. Adding the National Committee's role is to back all members of the party. Quote, the issue is whether or not the RNC should be sort of singling out members of our party who may have different views from the majority. That's not the job of the RNC. McConnell's comments also contrast with those of House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who ran away today when asked about it. He's evaded questions about the RNC's depiction of January 6th, but McCarthy criticized Cheney and Kinzinger when asked about the censure resolution. But yeah, he just ran can you imagine like being at work and if your boss comes, you just run, just keep, just run away, run away. All right. After this break, I will have the honor of speaking with Congressman Adam Schiff about the growing split in the Republican Party, the strongholds that save democracy and how they're currently under attack, as well as his book, Midnight in Washington. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. All right, everybody. Welcome back. I'm honored to be joined today by chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, member of the January 6th Select Committee, and author of Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could, representing California's 28th District, Congressman Adam Schiff. Congressman, welcome. Thank you. Great to be with you. It's an honor to speak with you today. And I have devoured your book. It's absolutely beautifully written. And there's so many poignant moments. And uh, I love that Timothy Schneider had written a blurb on it, who I actually, it's right here. I've got it right with me. It's my little compendium on tyranny. And so I have a couple of questions for you about some of the things that you discuss in this book. In the very first chapter, you open with the insurrection. And I was hoping you could describe that day. Well, um, I had suggested to the speaker about six months before the election that we form a 
small group of members uh, to try to anticipate all that might go wrong in the election. Uh, what happens if the Electoral College is tied? Uh, what happens if a state sends two slates of electors? What happens if the vice president during the joint session doesn't do his job? Um, and the speaker thought that was a very worthwhile project. And so we assembled a small group. We would meet periodically. We would talk with outside uh, lawyers and constitutional experts. Uh, we anticipated about a thousand things that could go wrong, except for the one that did, uh, a violent attack on the Capitol. But as a result of my suggesting this, uh, I was asked by the Speaker to be one of a handful of members to lead the opposition uh, on the House floor on January 6th to the efforts to decertify the results. So I was on the floor. I was making arguments. I was rebutting the Republicans. And I wasn't really paying attention to what was going on outside down the mall. Uh, at some point, though, I looked up from my notes and the speaker was no longer in her chair, which surprised me because I knew from our preparations that she intended to preside for the entire joint session. Uh, and then very soon thereafter, two Capitol Police officers rushed onto the House floor. They grabbed hold of our number two, Sonny Hoyer, and whisked him off the floor so quickly. I remember thinking, I don't think I've ever seen Steny move that fast. And very soon it became apparent uh, the reason. Um, there were uh, intruders in the building, rioters. Uh, Capitol Police were responding but had not been able to contain them. Uh, police told us we needed to get out our gas masks. We needed to be prepared to get down on the ground. And then ultimately we needed to get out of the chamber. Uh, and uh, what, what stands out most notably to me is... I hung back when we were instructed to evacuate uh, to let other people go first. And a couple of Republicans came up to me and said, you can't let them see you, uh, meaning the, the rioters outside who were at this point making their way over to the House side of the chamber. I know these people, one of them said, I can talk my way through these people. You're in a whole different category. And at first I was kind of touched by their evident concern of my safety. But that feeling quickly gave way to another, uh, and that is that if they hadn't been lying about the election, uh, not to mention me over the last four years, I wouldn't need to be worried about my security. None of us would. And I, and I, I remember feeling that after the attack and when we resumed on the floor, just disbelief that after seeing what transpired, Republicans would go right back to where they left off and still try to overturn the election. Uh, and I'm even more aghast now, over a year later, that having seen the destructive end that Trump and Trumpism brought our country, they are still running with the same lie that led to that attack uh, to attack our democracy uh, in legislatures uh, all around the 50 states. Yeah, and you talk about how democracy held, and it barely held, and it's still in peril. And, uh, you know, I was working on an op-ed writing this. There, there, are, there were several, I think, strongholds or guardrails that sort of came through for us. The Capitol Police, the courts afterwards. And the scary part is that at each of those guardrails, we came within inches. What is it like to, I mean, you, you are, uh, have a long career as a prosecutor def and defending the Constitution. What is it like to be in the position where we're so close at so many touch points at losing our democracy. And, and as I sit across from you here, well, on Zoom, you know a lot more than we know because of your position on the January 6th committee. 
what is it like to feel that threat and then to have it physically manifest itself at the Capitol that day? Well, I mean, it's awful. Um, and it's something I never thought I would experience, not just the attack on the Capitol and the, the fear of uh, violent uh, effort to stop the transfer of power for the first time in our history, but also, you know, to see the Justice Department where I served for almost six years become a kind of a criminal defense firm for the president or worse, um, used to go after the president's enemies uh, to wonder, as others did, are they going to turn that apparatus against me? You know, that's the kind of experience you have in the third world, not in what what uh, should be the most secure democracy in the world. Uh, so those were chilling things. And you're absolutely right. The guardrails came close to failing. And a number of those are under continuing assault. One of the guardrails that held was the House itself. Uh, Kevin McCarthy tried to overturn the election in the House. Uh, a vast majority of Republicans voted to overturn the presidential election. And if they were to gain control of the House in the midterms, Kevin McCarthy would overturn the presidential election in 2024 if Donald Trump loses. And so that's a guardrail that's very much at risk uh, and underscores, I think, the importance of uh, making sure that, that someone of the kind of low character and, and morals of Kevin McCarthy never goes near the Speaker's office any more than Donald Trump near, goes near the Oval Office. But, you know, one other guardrail that held was that local and state elections officials, Democrats and Republicans did their jobs. Uh, and one of the takeaways uh, of Trump and his enablers seems to be that if they couldn't uh, get the Secretary of State in Georgia, for example, to find 11,780 votes that don't exist, they're determined to have someone in that job and others around the country who next time will. And, you know, even local technocratic elections personnel are being run out of their posts with death threats. Um, so these are the guardrails that are currently under assault that we need to pay attention to. We need to shore up. Especially the laws now that are passing in the wake of the big lie, not just voter suppression laws, they, though they fall under that umbrella, but the laws where in certain states they want the state legislature. Because like you, we were talking about what if, they, what if nobody gets to 270? Oh, well, then it goes to the House, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we were thinking of that, there, you know, there were states who wanted to send alternate slates of electors and we're actively talking about that. And we sort of laughed it off like you can't just, you know, overturn the will of the voters and send your own electors if you. And besides, the laws don't allow that for that right now, as we've seen from memos to Wisconsin and Arizona back in 2020. But, you know, we were like, how, how go ahead and try to pass that law. I dare you go ahead and try to pass a law that says no matter how you vote, we, we the state legislature is going to are going to determine who the electors are. Yet they're doing it. That's exactly right. And, and to me, that is the most chilling of all. These these efforts to disenfranchise people are just pernicious. Uh, and a return to the kind of bigotry of Jim Crow uh, of, of many years ago, a new generation of Jim Crow. But the efforts at election subversion uh, to empower Republican boards and legislatures to essentially overturn the popular will if they don't like what voters do, that is, that is a terrifying uh, attack on the infrastructure of our democracy. Um, they're really uh, taking a page out of 
Viktor Orban, the wannabe dictator in Hungary's playbook, using the instruments of democracy against itself, not relying the next time on a violent insurrection, but relying on quasi-legal means uh, to, to diminish our democracy to the point where they can uh, undermine the results of a presidential election. And, and to me, that is among the most fragile points of our democracy uh, at present. It's, it's why Putin has been where he is and has been for so long in Russia, because of those small incremental, quote unquote, legal changes to the, the way that the government functions that allowed him to, to maintain power. One, one other point I would add to that, which you know, was really a main takeaway for me, coming out of the first impeachment, certainly true of the second impeachment, and that is having a brilliant constitution is not enough. Uh, having uh, well-framed laws is not enough. Uh, having pernicious laws like they're trying to pass is even worse, of course. But at the end of the day, we are reliant on members of the legislature and of Congress honoring their oath of office, um, being informed by ideas of right and wrong, and having some devotion to the truth. Uh, and if none of those factors are present, if members will just ignore the truth, propagate a big lie or a bunch of small ones, uh, or believe that anything they do that helps perpetuate themselves in power uh, makes it right, then none of it works. And so uh, we're facing, I think, a, a crisis in which one of America's two great parties uh, has given up being a party of ideas, has given up being a party devoted to democracy, has become a kind of autocratic cult of the former president. Uh, and that puts us on a very perilous footing. Yeah, indeed. And I, I want to talk more about where they are today versus where they were when you when you wrote the book, which isn't too far, but definitely farther. I do have to take a quick break. And when I come back, I want to I talk about that. And I want to talk a little bit about Russia. So everybody uh, stick around. We'll be right back. Everyone, welcome back. We are talking with Congressman Adam Schiff, who has just a few minutes before he has to go do some work, which is what we elected him to do. I'm going to go right to the end of my interview. I want to talk to you really quickly about your speech on the well of the, of the Senate where you said stirringly, and by the way, I think this will go down as one of the best speeches in recent history. You said your names will be tied to his with a cord of steel and for all of history. And recently, including today, we are seeing Republicans, like big name Republicans, start to back away from the RNC and, and Donald Trump and their language about legitimate political discourse. Is this too little, too late? Well, at the moment, it's still too little. Um, but I hope it is a sign of things to come. We really need the Republican Party to return to being a party of ideology. I, I hope that uh, people like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger represent the future of the Republican Party. We need two healthy parties uh, to make our system work. You know, over the last several years, we've seen a pretty limitless capacity Republican members to carry even the dirtiest of, of Donald Trumpian water. And I would like to think that we are have, we're seeing some stirrings of conscience, but, but sadly, so many of the people that repelled were repelled by the RNC's uh, censure of Cheney and Kinzinger. So many of them are former Republican officials. Uh, we need more currently elected officials to speak out, uh, to show some courage. Uh, then I'll feel that we're really on the right path. But uh, we do need good people of conscience in the GOP 
to speak out uh, in favor of the truth once again. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. There are a lot of former Republicans speaking out. We need the current ones too. And finally, probably one of the more striking lines that you write in the book is that you say, we do not have the luxury of despair. And when thinking of that and framing it with the length that justice takes and the silence of the Department of Justice, there are growing concerns that the Department of Justice, what's going on at the Department of Justice, and we aren't really clear about what the committee is working with the Department of Justice on. And you have said, you know, you haven't seen any signs of this, and it's very concerning. Has anything changed in that? Any developments in that? How do we move forward keeping together and holding it together and holding up our institutions, but also having real and reasonable concerns about the length of time the Department of Justice is taking? You know, I I feel pretty confident about what the department is doing vis-a-vis the January 6th insurrectionists uh, and the continuing investigation into how they were organized, funded, etc. The the charging of seditious conspiracy, I think, was a very important, serious step. My concerns are principally that the effort to overturn the election uh, had many dimensions. January 6th was only the, the last and final futile effort but there were efforts to uh, suborn the Department of Justice to that cause. There was all the frivolous litigation. There were the bogus of certificates of electors. Uh, there was the former president on the phone with the Secretary of State from Georgia trying to find just the number of votes he needed to win. I think in, in particular, Georgia merits investigation and not just by the Fulton County DA. And I see no sign that the Department of Justice is doing that. Uh, and that really does concern me. But, uh, but to uh, conclude where, where we began, I titled the book Midnight in Washington because midnight is the darkest hour of every day everywhere in the world. But it's also a, a time of hope because we know that what follows is filled with light. We're going to get through this. Uh, a, a, as you say, and as I mentioned in the book, we don't have the luxury of despair. What gives me optimism about the future is the fact that there are so many millions and millions of Americans all over the country in every state Uh, who love and cherish our democracy and far outnumber those who are at the moment trying to tear it down. Uh, So we will get through this, but what we do in this moment will determine how quickly we get through it uh, or how much damage we have to suffer along the way. Uh, So we all need to be engaged right now. We can all play a role. Uh, As the speaker likes to say, know your own power. And we all have the power in our own circles to make a difference right now in the life of our country. Yes, I agree. I don't think we should wait around for one person to save us. It's up to all of us to do that. Congressman Adam Schiff, thank you for your time. Everyone, you can buy Midnight in Washington wherever you get your books. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Well, thank you. And if your listeners uh, uh, read as part of a book group, let me know. I've been uh, enjoying uh, popping in on some Zoom book club meetings. So would, uh, would love to do that. Excellent. I'll be in touch. Thank you so much. You bet. You take care. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news? Everyone. Then good news, everyone. Good news, good news. And I want to thank everyone for sending in their good news stories. If you have anything you want to send in, whether it's pod pet pics or find a cat or what the mutt, or you want to tell me how dumb you think Louis Gohmert is, or shit kids say, or shit parents say. Pictures of Halloween costumes, I take those all year. Uh, your whoopee stories are, are one of my new favorite things. And of course, if you're a creator, I want to know what you're making and I want to know where we can get it. 
So by the way, you do that at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. First up from she, her and she, her two anonymous ladies. Hello, Leguminati loves. You asked for pibbles in sweaters and artwork. So this bitch saw her golden opportunity to show off all her I am not Minnesota nice fuck that shit energy. Mama's adopted me from Tulsa. Get your shit straight if you're nasty. <laughs> Can I propose a new game of pet theme songs? In her booties, nose leash, and the candy cane indignity we call a sweater, kittens is a sad trombone. That's the pibble. In normal times, my wife says kittens song is the greatest American hero theme song. Believe it or not, I'm walking on air. And yeah, yeah, to XOXO to everyone. Thank you very much. And look, <laughs> you forgot. You forgot. To, okay. The, the shoes are my favorite. I love the candy cane sweater. But yeah, this pibble is <laughs> like, please don't take my picture and send it to people. Look, oh, what a sweetheart. Oh, my gosh. And the dog's name is Kitten. That's so perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, and there's a drawing. Oh, that's beautiful. With one foot off the curb. Thank you very much. Next up from Jory, pronoun she and her. Ladies of the beans, I have a what the mutt and a PSA. I have two lovely mutts, Penny Pants and Spruce. This morning, I set one of my AirPods on the nightstand and went about my childcare tasks. A little while later, I went looking for it and it was gone. With dread, I realized the puppy must have gotten to it. I found what remained of the pod and thankfully the battery. Anyway, learn from my near miss, dear beans. Pictured as the culprit, Penny Pants, her black markings go down both back legs. A girl after my own heart and what looks like yoga pants. <laughs> and her big brother, Spruce, two years old and acts like he's 90 and has seen it all. Oh, yeah, the, the old grumpy dog, but is only two. That's so cute. I have no idea their breeds. Any guesses? Thank you, ladies, for all you do. I've listened to you for years. Can't imagine getting my news without swears. Oh, my goodness. That looks like a giant chihuahua to me. <laughs> Uh, Jack Russell, um, they're just so adorable. And they eat ear pods. That's good to know. Oh, look at them sleeping together. That is so cute. Oh, and then there's the then there's the chewed up ear pods. Mm, or air pods, excuse me. Yeah, goodness. Went to town. Surprised they didn't swallow. Just chewed them up. Interesting. Next up from Sally, pronoun she and her. Hello, queens. As requested, pics of pities and sweaters. It's darn cold here in Illinois, so my sweet Bella, Pit Lab Mix, is in a hoodie with her sister, Tika, who would not lower her standards to such human customs. Bella was rescued from under a trailer in Missouri, along with her nine puppies. I have never met such a docile, sweet-loving pup who loves all dogs, people, and especially little people. She also loves tormenting our cat. She sends you big slobbering licks and much snuggly love. Look at the baby. <laughs> the sweater. Oh, I like how the, the sleeves are cuffed. That's very, that's a nice touch. Thank you for that submission. Next up from James, pronouns he and him. Good morning, AG. I love your pod. I listen to it every day. Good morning, James. The day 2-7 pod mentioned makers. And I want to throw my hat in the ring as an aspiring jeweler. Oh, awesome. During COVID, I picked up copper and silversmithing. It started with a gift for my wife, and it has matured into a full-blown obsession. I named my company after her from Melissa Designs because she's my muse, my inspiration, and my guiding star. Oh, it's so sweet. We live in a small town in Maine. I love Maine. Oh, I did the Maine Comedy Festival in Bethel. I love it there. I handcraft all my own pieces from raw silver and copper. If you feel my work and story are good enough, I would be over the moon to hear it on the air. 
I struggle to get my name out there and I've had a hard time feeling good about my work. Would love for more people to be exposed to it and offer their feedback, criticism, interest, or anything in between. Please keep up the amazing work and fighting the good fight. Oh my God. That is incredible. Is that blue tourmaline? This is beautiful. James, these are really, this is really lovely. Let us know. Melissa Designs in Maine, everybody. This is beautiful, beautiful. I would love to hear anyone's feedback on this ring. And I also want this ring. (laughs) Next up from Norma, pronouns she and her. Greetings. I wasn't sure if this falls under good news or confessions, but the talk of childhood companions made me think of horse picture attached, which I've had for 50 plus years now. Ooh, that's coming in second to the 65-year-old one we got the other day. Horse is currently keeping me company in my home office. Fuck maturity. Some days I need my stuffy. No current family pets, so for pet tax, I've added a photo of the local turkey flock hanging out next to our vegetable garden. Thanks for all you do. Norma, look at these turkeys. Oh my gosh. Oh, and horse. Hey, looking good, though. Horse is looking good for 50 plus years, I must say. Gray, pink polka dots, pink yarn mane. Still has an eye. Of course, it's not a detachable one. That was the first thing that went on all my stuffies was the eyes, especially if they were buttons. And then my mom would replace them. I wonder if you've done any work. But the horse looks good. Looking good. 50 is the new 30. Anyway, thank you all for sending all these in. Pibbles and sweaters. Yes, please send more of those. Your whoobies, what you're making. Let us know where we can find you. I want to share it all. And and again, thank you everybody for for all of your support. It's been so amazing and, and wonderful over the last few days. And I hope Dana crushes it tonight at her show. And I hope you all have tickets to see it, either live or live streaming. And everybody, until tomorrow, when I'll be talking with I Am Politics Girl from Midas Touch, Lee, you don't want to miss it. Till then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health. I've been AG, and them's the beans. Refried beans. I like refried beans. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money. Millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry... We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to 
be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.